0: talks. I sincerely appreciate you finding time for us in this Labor Day weekend, but I think you're going to enjoy it. I've got Brian Gitt. Brian Gitt's one of my favorite in putting some sort of information flow, the facts, the research behind the renewable energy push, I think you're going to find this incredibly illuminating. So many myths out there that I think are important to sort of rectify as we go forward here. Plus, I've got Ozzy Jurek talking uh, big stuff on real estate. Did you see? Looks like we've underestimated the number of newcomers by a million. I'll get into that further with us. Michael Levy's joining. Victor Adair talking about the contraction in the GDP and the implications for that on interest rates, all of that coming your way. But first, I thought it was appropriate as I get into Labor Day that I got an email from a public sector worker who said that he likes money talks but found that strange. Well, you know, actually, I get a lot of emails from both public and private sector uh, workers, union members, you name it, they're regular listeners. But I was thinking about why the email writer thought it was strange because no matter where you work, Understanding and being on the right side of major economic and financial trends is important. One of my major points on Money Talks is that these trends impact us all. It doesn't matter your political preference, your gender identity, sexual orientation, union, non-union worker, you name it. I mean, we've all had to deal with rising food prices. We've been impacted by rising interest rates on our borrowing. And I think uh, we've got more discussion on that to come. Renters have been hit hard by skyrocketing costs. While all homeowners have had to deal with increased property taxes, insurance, maintenance, we've all had to pay higher gasoline prices. And that spins off into a number number of other areas. So if you think your politics or other group affiliation, like a union member, is going to save you, you're going to be very disappointed. But as I say, given we're coming into Labor Day, I thought I'd focus for a moment on the labor movement. First, let me say I fully support unions, people's right to organize. But you know what? For me, that doesn't mean I have to follow union leaders blindly, especially when it comes to economics and finance, where too often they prove they're confused, ill-informed, ideologically driven. You know, I make a big distinction between union elites and workers, and my allegiance is definitely to workers. See, my criticism with organized labor is they still haven't come to the realization that a strong economy, including a vibrant private sector, is in their members' best interests. Now, come on, it's straightforward. Do their members do better in a strong or a weak economy? Are union pensions more secure in a strong or weak economy? Are wage increases more likely in a strong or weak economy? you think those answers would be obvious, but that's not reflected in organized labor's policy prescriptions. I'll give an example. They continually push for higher taxes, more regulation on business. Well, you know what? That discourages capital investment, discourages productivity gain, which hurts economic growth and restricts wage increases. This is not some sort of Ill- ideological left versus right issue. It's not politics. It's economics. Gosh, it's economics and it's common sense. And it's backed by research. Looking at a study by Canadian economists Kenneth McKenzie and Farid, both conclude that wages in Canadian provinces drop by more than a dollar when corporate tax revenue is increased by a dollar. Similar conclusion to a Federal Reserve study by economist Allison Felix. Reviewed data from 30 countries concluded that a 10% increase in corporate tax rates reduced wages by 7%. Again, another one. uh, research conducted by economist Kevin Hazit and Arparna Mathur of the American Enterprise Institute. Study found that wages of manufacturing workers dropped as taxes on companies grew. I mean, there's a lot more research, but come on, it's common sense. When businesses have less money due to taxation or costly regulations, they have less money to afford significant raises. And it also applies to public sector workers. Again, uh, one more example. You know, is a raise more likely in a weak economy or a strong one? Or what about one of the other big, big challenges going for unionized workers in the private sector, has to be security of their pensions. Well, it's a problem for all workers. You might remember problems with Nortel's pension, Fraser Paper in the Maritimes, Catalyst Paper pensioners in BC, so many other examples, especially in the US. What union leaders can't seem to understand is that this is about math. It's actuarial accounting, to be more precise. And their anti-business agenda hurts workers. To not understand that union pensions are invested in Canada's biggest corporations, Come on. I mean, every single pension owns the big banks, still own our biggest resource companies, including oil in many cases. The profitability of these companies directly impacts the ability of pensions to meet its obligation to union workers. Yet union leaders push policies that restrict growth profitability of these companies. Gosh, they even complain about the profitability at times. Well, that hurts workers' pensions. I mean, Look at the agenda of public sector unions, along with Unifor, with their anti-resource, anti-pipeline, anti-business stance. Well, it's an open attack on other union workers, maybe the Yukon Building and Trades or the United Steelworkers, International Union of Operating Engineers. I mean, the list is another long one. You know, it wasn't that long ago I heard a public sector union leader and some politicians complain that some companies are increasing their dividend payouts. They didn't seem to have any idea that, where those dividends go ends up in union pensions. Here, my point is this. The dramatic changes economically and financially we're experiencing demand new approaches, not old rhetoric. New approaches underpinned by an understanding of the importance of capital investment or productivity growth to the standard of living of union members and every worker for that matter. I appreciate that changing, entrenched decades-old attitudes difficult. But I think failing to do so is going to have dire consequences. It's going to reduce job security. It's going to reduce pension security in a world where the old ideologically driven anti-business, anti-capitalist rhetoric is not going to serve workers, union and non-union. As regular listeners to Money Talks know... Uh, my, my approach is that the more information we have, the better research we make ourselves uh, you know, available to us, etc. cetera, uh, the better our decision making becomes. And I think there's nowhere that is more clear is when it comes to climate change, when it comes to the move to transitional energy, those kinds of things. So that's why one of my favorites is with us today, Brian Gitt who's done a fabulous job on that front, bringing facts to us, bringing research to us, really to try and inform the debate to move us forward. Brian, thank you for uh, for finding time for us.
1: Thank you. I always loved chatting and
0: looking forward to our discussion. Let let me come, uh, for everyone who's not familiar, uh, a little bit of your background only, because... I just find in the climate debate, when someone says something that's against the public narrative, they dismiss it automatically. Well, they can't dismiss you. You've got you know 20 years plus in the renewable energy sphere, in the whole uh, climate change kind of activism. Uh, so tell us just quickly about your background.
1: I'm an environmentalist, and that's how I kind of got started in working in energy. I was drawn to energy because I saw that it has such an impactful Way on pollution and our built environment, our transportation networks, basically everything in our life, modern society, our whole modern civilization is running on energy. And so I saw it being so impactful. I I wanted to contribute in a meaningful way to reduce pollution, to uh, protect natural habitat, uh, all of the things that environmentalists want. And so that's what drove me to working in the energy sector. And I spent, you know, 20 years promoting wind and solar and energy efficiency and really trying to put forth those ideas out in the world. And I, I worked in various capacities. You know, I ran a nonprofit organization that promoted green building policies in California. I was the CEO of a consulting firm that specialized in the commercialization of various clean technologies, everything from fuel cell vehicles. We ran energy efficiency programs. We promoted renewable energy. We worked on commercialization of more efficient lighting and those types of technologies. So I've been immersed in this for a long time. And I started to see cracks in my own beliefs when a lot of my assumptions about how the world was going to work when we started incorporating a lot of these ideas um, what the actual outcomes were. And when I started seeing those that disconnect between my beliefs and outcomes is really when I started going down to the rabbit hole and questioning some of those assumptions. and And that really was eye-opening because what I uncovered was I was immersed in confirmation bias. <laughs> I was very unwilling to question my beliefs. And I had such a strong identity associated with my environmental ethos that I really wasn't able to look at things in a fair and balanced manner and really evaluate costs and benefits. I would ignore um, all of the the positive benefits, for example, of fossil fuels, and just focus one hundred percent on the negative. And it took me a long time to reconcile this. And I am glad I did. And my thinking evolved, like most of us. The more experience in the world we have, hopefully, we're learning and evolving all the time. So that's kind of a little bit of in a in a shortened version of my journey. Well, when, I'm, when you're saying you felt you suffered from uh, confirmation
0: bias, that uh, you weren't objective because you had so much uh, self-identity with it, I, saw, I was thinking to myself, man, that qualifies you uh, as a member of the Canadian cabinet because I don't see any adjustment <laughs> whatsoever. No, and I think those are the qualities that we have been missing. You know, I mean, I, I, I regularly say this on the show, but if you want to really drill down to how absurd it's become, it seemed like it was a shock to the Germans that the sun didn't shine every day. So they had decommissioned nuclear power without backup power. I mean, it's been at that rudimentary level of lack of just practicality as we went forward. Uh, Let me come back to, you know, so you were, uh, you know, immersed in the solar side of things. What are the kinds of things you said when all of a sudden the facts didn't match your hopes, your dreams and your, you know, ideology? What kinds of things did you bump into?
1: I think if we zoom out and we look objectively about how do we really evaluate different energy sources we have to have a common framework of evaluation we all want the same goal we want cleaner air we want cleaner water we want to preserve natural habitat for both recreation and for for other living species on the planet i think most reasonable people if you sat across the kitchen table from them and just outlined what are we trying to achieve here what is the goal i would bet the vast majority of people would agree. Always a few exceptions, but most of us could agree on the goals. And so once we work backwards from the goals, okay, we're aiming at this. We want cleaner water. We want less emissions. We're going to protect more habitat. Then how do we go about evaluating various technologies? And so that's where I think it's really important to lay out the framework. Because if we don't have a framework for evaluation – We can just get sucked into confirmation bias and focusing myopically on one thing. For example, like CO2 emissions. CO2 emissions is an important metric for evaluation, but it's not the only metric. We have to look at materials use and land use and energy security and waste and all of the lifespan of the equipment. All of these things need to be considered, and we need to weigh the costs and benefits of these various energy sources. So, I think that's the most important thing: is we got to agree on the common framework of evaluation, which I really don't think is that controversial. I think most people would say, "All right, cost—that's an evaluation metric. How much materials, how many resources went into the life cycle of creating this particular technology? How much waste does it produce? I mean, how much land does it take up? All of these things." our very common sense approach to evaluation. So then if we agree, we lay out all those evaluation criteria, and then we start applying those criteria. And when you apply the criteria, it really matters on where you're talking about. You can't just, energy is very hyper-localized. What works in New York is different than in Texas. That's different than in Toronto. That's different than in Zimbabwe. You can't generalize because the local resources that are available, the climate is completely different, the local constraints and conditions or level of advancement of the economy. For example, if you're comparing um, Zimbabwe to New York, I mean, the, the energy solutions are going to be different, right? So given that, usually I try to locate the geographic area that we're trying to talk about and apply those evaluation criteria. And when we do that and we start kind of methodically walking through it, what we'll see is a lot of the technologies that myself and others have believed were actually providing great environmental and economic benefit actually fall fall considerably short. And if you compare, for example, nuclear power with solar and start running through those criteria, well, you lo- you look at energy security. Well, where are the core raw materials and resources made to make a solar panel well we know that those are mostly coming from minerals that are processed in china or the raw minerals are mined in places like the congo or in latin america and then they're shipped to china for processing and then we know that most of that infrastructure is fueled by coal power in china we know that there's acute labor issues and in some cases There's even slave labor involved um, in parts of Xinjiang, China, that are contributing to um, labor, obviously, concerns about this. And we start kind of walking through all of these aspects of energy security. Well, yeah, it's great that we're not relying on fuel at the point of generation. And then, yeah, that's a benefit. But from an energy security standpoint, if we're going to be so dependent on China, where 97% of the solar wafers and ingots and these core critical elements that go into a solar panel are coming from an adversarial country, then that's a problem, right? And so we got to dissect each one of these things. So energy security, it's, it's scores incredibly low. Now, we also have a problem with nuclear right now on energy security as well, because we divested a lot and outsourced a lot of our manufacturing and enrichment capability, for example, and even mining to other countries and specifically Russia. And now we're building that back up. So there's no perfect energy source. There's no perfect energy technology. We have to weigh the costs and benefits. But when you just walk through energy security, you have huge concerns in China with renewables. If you talk about materials use, you're talking about 18 times less materials to build a nuclear power plant than a solar power plant right 18 times and think about the ripple effects of that materials use so it's all the diesel fuel that goes into mining and transporting and moving all that material along and then you make a product out of it that is consuming a lot more space and materials you got to ship that product all around the world then you got to deploy it because it uses more materials, it takes up more land, and then at the end of life, you still have to throw it away or recycle it or something. And it it's a lot more burdensome if it has a lot more materials use. So you have to look at that entire life cycle of these different elements. So eighteen times less materials to build nuclear, seventy five times less land to build nuclear than solar, three hundred times less waste you know, you, you can look at all of these areas and you quickly start tallying it up and you see that some of the technologies that we're claiming have these environmental benefits actually are falling considerably short. And, and sorry, I'm just gonna throw back
0: to something you said. And we don't have any evidence that the nuclear, especially Canada could be a leader in that if Canada chose to, we don't use slave labor. You know, when what, 40, 40 plus percent of polysilicon for solar panels, as you said, come out of Zhejiang province. You know, I don't know how that's not part of it or, you know, the child labor in the Congo for cobalt. I don't know why that's not part of the discussion, uh, but it comes back to something else you, you said. And I've been appalled by the lack of cost benefit analysis. I mean, if we're serious, if you're serious about anything, you know, whether you're buying a house or you're doing a renovation or, you know, car or that kind of you do a cost benefit analysis. And man, has that been missing from our discussions, which I think is what's throwing a roadblock as we get further down, sort of let's get practical here.
1: Agreed. And I think there's also the, the energy system is complicated, yeah. and, and most people are busy in their lives and under, don't have the time and effort to, to dig in and evaluate it. But I'll give you another good example. Oftentimes, we hear, and this is a very common uh, line of thinking people think, well, if we adopt electric vehicles, then we will reduce oil demand. But that's absolutely false, and that is not connected to how actually oil is made. So if every car in the United States was electric tomorrow, oil demand would still likely increase. And that's very counterintuitive. Like most people that don't have the time to study how oil refineries work and how gasoline is made would say, what? What do you mean? If all electric vehicles were basically in place tomorrow, how, of course we would cut um, oil demand. But the way this works, first of all, oil fuels 97 percent of all global transportation so trucks trains planes ships all of that is fueled by oil today it's a very teeny teeny sliver that's not and most of our agriculture is enabled by oil so from equipment to chemicals all of our fertilizers pesticides all of that requires oil it not not even including when we just talk about all the consumer goods. I mean, millions of products from clothing, housing, phones, computers, medical equipment, millions of products that we rely on every single day for modern life. So then when we look at, we need oil for all of those things. So even if we go to just electric vehicles, we still need those things. And this gets into this basic underlying misunderstanding about how oil is produced. Because here's the faulty reasoning. People think, well, gasoline is 43% of a barrel of oil. And that's in the United States. In the United States, it's about 43%. So they think, well, if we cut gas use by 43%, then we should cut oil use in oil consumption by 43%. But that's categorically false and misunderstands about how oil is distilled. So each product from a, barrel, from a barrel of oil is separated by heat. And the lighter products, like gasoline, they get separate, separated out at lower temperatures. The heavier products, things like asphalt and diesel fuel, those things get separated out at higher temperatures. So that means you can't make heavier products without also making the lighter products. This is why in the late 1800s, when we first started using um, oil for lighting, Right. That we we got rid of whale oil, which was good because then we saved the whales by not <laughs> hunting them to death, by transitioning to using oil to make kerosene, to, to make a light. And that was a, a great evolution. This is before vehicles. Obviously, we weren't even using it for vehicles. But when we made kerosene, we had all of this leftover gasoline that we didn't know what to do with. They used to dump it in rivers. They used to set it on fire. It's a byproduct. It's a waste byproduct of that distillation process. And so you're going to make gasoline regardless. So even if you cut gasoline overnight, you're still going to have to make these other products. And when you start looking at, well, what goes into an electric vehicle? Well, you need a lot of minerals. It uses six times more minerals than a gas car all of the magnanese and cobalt and graphite and zinc and nickel all lithium all these things that go into the battery especially but not just the battery because the battery is so heavy it's about a thousand pounds uh, for a typical electric vehicle battery that means you got to cut weight in other ways so that means they use aluminum and carbon fiber and these other alloys to mm-hmm. cut weight in the frame and, and other details and because of all that that means you need more minerals If you're gonna make more batteries, if you're gonna make thousand pound batteries versus using the 80 pound gas tank, means you're gonna have to mine more. If you're gonna mine more, well, you're gonna need to use a lot more diesel fuel because diesel fuel is needed to power those machines that dig, process and transport all those materials. Well, the more diesel fuel we need, the more oil we need because of the way the distillation process works. So you can't, we can't replace diesel fuel, jet fuel, Fuel oil, asphalt, any of these things um, today, we don't have alternatives to those, right? And this is assuming that all these electric cars, uh, all cars in the U.S. tomorrow are are electric. So we're still going to need that. We still need to make all these other products, which means we're still going to make the gasoline. So then what are we going to do with all this gasoline? That's 135 billion gallons of gasoline consumed annually just in the U.S. Well, that would flood the market, right? No one's buying gas anymore. So it's going to flood the market. That gas is going to go somewhere because we got it. We're going to create it. It's going to go to developing countries. And a lot of those people aren't even driving today, are now going to be able to drive because the price is going to drop. So we're going to export all this gasoline. It's going to be burned in engines that are less fuel efficient yeah. because they're going to be weaker environmental regulations in many of these countries um, that – don't have nearly as stringent as in Canada in, in the U.S. Plus, now you're enabling even more people to drive, which is, I would argue, is a good thing. Um, but if you have much cheaper fuel, more people are going to drive, and they're going to drive more. So ultimately, you're going to increase that supply of gasoline, drive down the cost, and you're going to burn more fuel. So you're going to burn more on the front end and that's upstream supply chain to do all the mining and all the transportation of all those minerals to create these bigger batteries. And you're still gonna burn just all that gasoline anyway. So ultimately, your oil consumption will not drop by just going to electric vehicles until we find scalable, cost-effective alternatives for diesel fuel, jet fuel, fuel oil, asphalt, all of those things. And right now, we don't really have those ready for prime time.
0: It's interesting in the whole discussion about uh, energy, We uh, the people who advocate for renewables, for example, avoid those kind of questions. Like we've got, what, 6,000 products made from petroleum? You got any progress on any of them? You know, it's like it's not going to exist. And uh, and I just want to be clear, I'm not critical of people not understanding them. I'm critical of people who push policies that don't understand it. I'm critical of politicians who enact policies who don't understand this. I mean, the general public has to get uh, educated. But, man, it's these. I don't see them having any interest in, in uh, informing themselves about the sophistication here. And, and you mentioned, and you've been writing about this on BrianGit.com. And by the way, Git is G-I-T-T. Brian about, you know, good luck with the electric vehicles. I mean, they're beginning bigger and heavier, you know, the battery then gets bigger and heavier and you talk about, well, how much mineral does that mean that we're going to now have to extract? And of course, as you just alluded to, we're going to need diesel powered monster sized machines, you know, for that. I mean, the list just goes on of when it comes to, let's get practical about this stuff.
1: Yeah, this is called the Jevons paradox with energy efficiency. So the more efficient we get, the more resource or energy we use, which is a good thing yeah. overall, right? Because it's, it's human, that's how humans progress and evolve and create new value and technology. Mm-hmm. But we see this in just um, internal combustion vehicles. So engines have been getting a lot more efficient over the last decade, two decades, right? They're getting more fuel efficient. They're just um, more refined, precise instruments. And at the same time, we are increasing our overall emissions. And you'd say, well, how is that possible? Because I thought we're, the engines are getting more efficient. Shouldn't we be decreasing our emissions? Well, we're building bigger vehicles, right? So, mm-hmm. it, you know, pe- more people are preferring to drive sport, SUVs, sport utility vehicles, light truck, pickup trucks, things of that nature. Because human wants human desires. We want nice things. We want bigger things. We want faster things. So even as we get more efficient, if we're just building bigger vehicles in offsetting all of that emissions, we're not actually decreasing there. same, that is exactly what's happening with electric vehicles today, which is you, you just alluded to. And by the way, I'm not against electric vehicles. I'm not against any technology that make our lives better. And if you want to go buy an electric vehicle, knock yourself out nothing wrong you're not going to hear any negative comment from me just don't pretend that you're doing something that's good for the environment though um or or somehow that is is good for society it's a it's a cool technology but we have to be honest about what these pros and cons are and when we talk about electric vehicles People are buying larger electric vehicles. You already see the trend. Look at look at Ford; they're putting out the 150 Lightning pickup trucks, and not, and I'm not even going to talk about the Hummers and electric Hummers yeah. and all that because that's kind of a whole different category. Those things have you know like nine thousand pound beasts. But uh, you know the batteries are getting bigger and bigger and bigger, which means that the total life cycle emissions of an electric vehicle are going to be higher than if they just bought a smaller fuel efficient gas car which is ironic because they say that the whole reason they're going towards electric is to cut those emissions so again nothing against electric vehicles but you know if you're going to buy an suv or a pickup truck that's electric that has that bigger battery you're not really decreasing emissions
0: Well, I'd also, that's back to uh, cost benefit analysis. Uh, And again, my concern isn't, I'm with you. I mean, if someone wants to buy one, go ahead and buy one and don't tell me you're reducing emissions, but I will say this tons or uh, I should say billions of tax subsidies are going into those to the upper end of the income scale. We're not seeing a lot of people who are making $50,000 a year, you know, jumping up and buying a big electric vehicle. So I, I'm just letting you, my, is my other complaint is how many public funds are going into that that could be going elsewhere, because those public funds aren't, aren't doing anything but facilitating the purchase by upper middle class and higher than that you know, income earners. Uh, so, you know, each one of these things needs some analysis in that way. Uh, the other thing you've written about, which I loved is, again, it's a heavier vehicle because the battery's so much heavier. Well, you've got more wear and tear in your roads, wear and tear on tires, petroleum-based, asphalt, that kind of stuff. And it just points out how complicated the formula is if we want to come
1: to the sort of most efficient and effective way of reducing emissions. The the sad part about all this is we know how to reduce emissions and mm-hmm. it's 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 a combination of continued technological technology advancement. We've seen this in the oil and gas sector. Uh, we've done this transition in the United States and parts of Canada from burning more coal to burning natural gas, and that decreases has huge benefit in terms of reduction in air pollution as well as CO2 emissions, right? I mean, uh, natural gas has 10% of the air pollution is coal and 50% of the CO2 emissions. So there's huge environmental benefits to transitioning to cleaner burning fuels. We know that nuclear power has zero emissions. It has the smallest footprint from a land perspective, from a materials perspective of any energy source. So you're right. There's a big opportunity cost by pumping the economy full of subsidies for inferior, less efficient technologies that it, it actually act in a parasitic way on some of these superior technologies. So for example, natural gas plants, they can't operate at, at optimal efficiency. If they're having to ramp up and down all the time to accommodate intermittent renewables, uh, they're going to burn more fuel inefficiently. Most natural gas plants, combined cycle natural gas plants, you can't just shut them on and off. You have to actually maintain a certain level of temperature and just momentum in the whole cycle there. So to do that, you have to keep them running at about 50% anyway, right? So you're still burning fuel. You're operating this thing inefficiently. You're ramping it up and down, creating more emissions than it would have been if you just were to run it in an optimal, efficient way in the first place right? Instead of trying to accommodate all of this intermittency and chaos that's injected into the power grid through renewable energy.
0: Um, another thing that you've been writing about is with renewables, uh, the sort of premise that they're going to make energy or electricity cheaper. And that's not been va- validated by experience at this point.
1: Not at all. Actually, I just had a tweet this morning on this uh, about what the contract prices are uh, for Onshore wind, offshore wind, and uh, solar. And I'm just going to look this up real quick. So, yeah, I, I, the, the tweet was the fantasy of the ever cheaper renewable energy has come to an end. You know What we're seeing in New York right now is onshore wind is up 71 percent, solar up 63 percent, offshore wind up 48 percent these are not minor cost price increases, right? These are substantial, 71% price increase on the cost of onshore wind is huge. And the reason for this is, is really just physics and economics, right? I mean, we know that these were artificially low because of low interest rates, because of really cheap commodities, cheap energy, cheap labor in China for a long time. Well, The whole supply chain has changed and geopolitically, the whole, all these relationships have shifted in the days of having, you know, these significant drops in the cost of renewable energy, I believe are over. We're going to start seeing continued inflation because these are very materials intensive technologies, as we talked about previously, and they have to be mined and processed and transported. And that all of those parts are just costing a lot more today than they were before. And we don't have these artificially low, really um, cheap financing rates that we had previously. So when you add all this up uh, with the supply chain bottlenecks, the higher cost of uh, minerals and processing transport, uh, all of this stuff is just leading to, to price inflation for renewable power.
0: You know, one of the things that I found uh, discouraging is Europe goes through their energy crisis, say, last year. They got a mild winter that certainly helped them out. And now I look at some of the reports coming out of Europe or the conferences being held. It's looked like they've learned absolutely nothing on any of this stuff, you know, which I just find astounding. So I wanted to know, are you more optimistic now than you were, say, one or two years ago or the same or less optimistic? It looks like we're slow learners, in my view. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, unfortunately, it's human nature to kind of learn from uh, experience in this. And I, the in the long term, we will evolve. We will continue to walk up the ladder of energy density. We will, nuclear power, I believe, is inevitable. We're going to be burning natural gas for likely the next 100 years. Who knows, you know, it's hard to predict the future, but for many decades to come. Uh, I think what happens is is there there's course correction, right? When yep. the power grid fails and businesses can't operate and hospitals can't get power and these critical services we need um, are put in jeopardy, people will respond and politicians will act. I mean, you have to just follow the incentives on the, all this. And yes. at the end of the day, all of us, I don't care – what end of the political spectrum you're on, you want reliable, affordable energy. Everyone wants that. Everyone needs that. Everyone wants to take hot showers, drink, uh, have good food, drink cold beer, whatever it is. And they're not going to have that if you don't have a reliable, affordable energy system. And so I think there's a natural course correction that will happen when the lights go out and when costs go up. People will go ballistic. And I wish it wouldn't have to go to that point where you're deindustrializing a nation sure. such as Germany. I mean, Germany has just amazing engineering capability and prowess and in industrial um, um, infrastructure that we should be leveraging. It's sad to watch a country that's so competent and has so much knowledge and expertise wasted away on these terrible energy policy decisions. Uh, and you're seeing all of these companies run for the exits and they just can't afford to operate there anymore. These fertilizer plants, glass plants, ceramic plants, you know, all of the making, anything that requires a lot of energy is just sprinting for the exit right now. Even companies that are like BASF, that is based in Germany, they're not building any new infrastructure there. They're going to China and the United States. You know, it's interesting.
0: How to validate your point there is, look what happened when oil prices went up, gas prices went up in the States. Well, what does the Biden administration do who wants to tell me how green they are, they immediately go to the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to get those prices down. Or you look at Germany who's now using more coal than ever, you know, uh, because, of course, they've made so many policy errors regarding renewable energy and backup power and relying on Russia. You know, it's a a complicated subject. But look how fast they retreated from that. You know, it just validates, as you say, that political pressure will be intense once you start getting blackouts or some of these consequences become more dire. And uh, I'm with you. I'm afraid we still aren't there yet. We still haven't seen this sort of out Again, there is progress when you look at uh, attitudes about nuclear in Germany right now. They've changed quite a bit, but still, I think there's a little bit ways to go. You know? It's yeah, just... I
1: mean, it, it all this boils down to that. More energy and better forms of energy are the key to unlocking human potential, and that is the that if we have to understand this foundational axiom of how important that is, and people have this inverted, they think somehow. Oh, we need to use less energy, right? Even though three three billion people on the planet are living in energy poverty, don't even have anywhere near the quality of life that you and I and everyone listening to this this show has. So we need so much more energy than today. You know, the estimates are the world is going to need fifty percent more energy by twenty fifty than today. We're not going to get. We're not going to live in a world of less energy. We're going to use more energy. So we might as well choose technologies that are superior and use energy efficiently and deliver maximum amount of return on investment for that. And that's really nuclear and natural gas uh, as well as oil and for a lot of the transportation applications because oil's not going anywhere. We're going to use more oil in 2050 than we do today. We're going to use more energy in general in 2050 than we do today. So, And if not, that means that we are really in a doom loop and, and the quality of life will erode considerably, that you're going to have billions of people stuck in energy poverty. And all, many of us that enjoy a lot of the benefits of modern life, our quality of life will have to erode and decay. And no one wants that. So it's more energy and better energy is, should be our top priority. And I'll say one of
0: the things that people can do in this regard, as I say, I've been dismayed by the fact that our policymakers or those pushing for policies haven't shown any interest in really informing themselves of the facts of the matter, the practicality of the matter in all the areas that you discuss. And that's why I encourage people to go to at Brian Gitt, Brian G-I-T-T, at Brian Git and Brian You do a fabulous job bringing the public up to speed on what the politicians aren't telling us. Brian, thanks so much for taking time with us.
1: Thanks Mike,
0: always loved chatting with you. Time now for the quote of the week. Well, I think everybody knows that classes at Canadian universities are set to open. And regardless of whether you have a family member uh, attending or you know someone might be teaching or participating in other capacities, I think it should be of interest to all Canadians, what goes on at our universities, given that StatsCan calculates that about $5 billion in federal tax dollars, $15 billion in provincial tax dollars are spent on our universities. But I haven't seen any data on the percentage of Canadians who do have a clear idea on what goes on, what's being taught, and what agendas outside the subject-specific areas our tax dollars are supporting. Well, that brings me to my quote of the week, certainly one perspective, by Philip Carl Salzman, He's Emeritus Professor of Anthropology at McGill. He's a senior fellow at the Frontier Centre for Public Policy, and he's a fellow at the Middle Eastern Forum, as well as president of Scholars for Peace in the Middle East. Boy, that's a long resume. But he states in quotes, the foremost advocates of racism and sexism in Canada are our universities no longer are individuals treated as individuals according to their achievements, potential, and merits. Rather, under the label diversity, inclusion, and equity, students, professors, staff, and administrators are treated in admissions, funding, hiring, and benefits, not according to their ability to do their assigned job, but according to their sex, race, sexuality, ethnicity, and disability. Well, as I say, that, uh, You're going to get some results. Uh, There are consequences to every policy we have. And I think the erosion of merit in favor of other criteria certainly does have an impact, but one that we don't seem to be willing to debate or have an opportunity to debate. But that's quite a statement coming from uh, Philip Carl Salzman. We've got the Canadian Central Bank meeting again this coming week, uh, September 6th, but the bottom line is people are always looking, has the economy slowed down sufficiently to discourage any further rate increases? It's kind of a case if you're interested in interest rates where bad news becomes good news. Uh, The worst news there is in the economy, well, the better it is in terms of your worries over rising interest rates. Mike Levy is going to join me right now. Mike, I want to go to a specific aspect of that. Let's say you know, who do we pay attention to? Who should we look to when we say, what are they seeing going forward in the economy? And one of the places that I think, you know, because this is what they do for a living is the Canadian banks. And I had to notice that they've become a little more pessimistic. If you measure that by the amount of loan loss provisions, you know, allowances on the books in case things get worse. Well, I've been
2: noticing those have been going up Well, they have Mike, and uh, I went back a year actually because I seem to recall that there was a clarion warning uh, about a year ago, and I found it. It was Dave McKay, who's the CEO of RBC. Now, remember, this is from a year ago, and uh, he says the banks are are, uh, Canadian banks are once again building reserves to guard against loan defaults. Uh, Royal Bank of Canada CEO Dave McKay warning that the end of an economic cycle is getting near he said the inflationary pressures appear to be peaking this is a year ago he's saying this but this pushes us even closer towards the end of an economic cycle and his remarks suggested that more of the bank loans that are currently being repaid could turn sour in the future that was a year ago and boy Every bank, all six of the majors, including National Bank Financial, are warning about provisions for loan losses, and they're significantly higher than they were last quarter, last half, last three quarters, and particularly a year ago. Well, and again, let's, I want to remind people that's not just a comment
0: on Canada. I mean, all of our banks have so much business going on, some more than others in the U.S. So they're looking across the border too and saying, and maybe because of the regional bank challenges there, because of commercial loans, or maybe it's, you know, uh, Silicon Valley Bank sort of put a chill through them, whatever it is. So they're, as you said, they're talking about the economic cycle on the whole, Canada, U.S., maybe some other overseas, but bottom line, that's his message. And as you say, Mike, I mean, the numbers are very clear. They're more concerned now than they were a year ago.
2: Uh, Mike, they really are, and I'm going to quickly whip through uh, five banks, six banks, and and just give you uh, what their loan loss provisions uh, are and um, what they were the same quarter last year. Remember, this is what McKay was talking about. National Bank Financial, $111 million in provisions now on their quarterly earnings. Same quarter last year, $57 million. BMO, $492 million. Same quarter last year they set aside 136 million. Scotia Bank 819 million loan loss provisions, 412 million last year. RBC 616 million, last year 340 million. TD 766 million, last year 351 million and uh CIBC last one 736 million last year 243 million and these figures I don't want anybody to to, to try and think they can remember them but the the gap between this year And last year is significant, and it's to every bank. And what they're also including is they're anticipating that loans that are being repaid right now, some of those are going to go sour. And that, to me, tells a whole story, Mike, about where we are going forward. And it's coming from one of the most reliable sources, as you said on the outset, all of the Canadian banks.
0: Well, obviously, they're seeing the same dangers, the same risk, and they're being prudent. I mean, that's their job. We see what imprudence happens when you look at some of the lending in the US. And and I think that's what they're also worried about. They look at the commercial loans, you know, in the office sector, for example, the offices have dropped about 30% in value, occupancy rates are down, rents are down. Oh, and their loan payments are up because interest rates are rising. So I'm, I'm sure they're worried about exposure down there as well as in Canada because we still haven't seen any real problems in our residential markets, but there's no shortage of warnings too.
2: Well, Mike, there isn't. An, and what you were talking about, the office uh, uh, l- lending down or, or lending for real estate lending for developments in the United States has and is going sour, but – in Canada to a much smaller degree, but we're starting to see cracks that way also. When you take everything that you listed, it's happening in Canada just to a smaller degree.
0: Well, I I think the message is straightforward. We got it from Frank Joostra last week too, and Frank told us he's just being cautious. And I think it's an environment with that level of uncertainty, most of it to deal with debt at some level, individual, corporate, you know, government debt, that puts a big overlay of uncertainty, I think, in the markets. And I think people have to be aware. And that's why I found it so interesting when our banks are saying, you know, they're not saying, you know, hell's coming in you know, in, in a nutshell or something like this, but they are saying it is
2: prudent to be cautious at this point. And I think that they're saying it and they're saying it with one voice has to have all of us just stop, slow down for a moment. Take notice to what they're saying because what they're doing is forecasting what's going to happen in yeah. the next months and in the next year or so. It's a forecast from the banks, and they're talking, they're singing in unison.
0: Yeah, one thing to leave with is make sure you're not one of the problems. Do everything you can. <laughs> Mike, <laughs> in, the meantime, in the meantime, I hope you go and have a great week.
2: You too, Mike. Have a good weekend.
0: Let's get to the hottest subject in the country. Ozzy Jerk's with me again. We've been talking, of course, about these issues for for years, but it seems like right now, Ozzy, the whole housing shortage, uh, size of the population growth from different directions, is really the top subject, it seems to me. Uh, So I want to start with something, Oz, and I'll remind people, you've been writing, as I say, about this on ozbuzz.ca for about three years we've been talking about it, but here's the latest. We did chat about this a bit ago, but the CIBC's Benjamin Tall comes in and says, hey, guess what, guys? You're undercounting the number of people who have now come into the country, uh, maybe from uh, non-permanent residents that just stayed here after the fact by upwards of a million people. I mean, obviously huge impact on housing.
3: Uh, The interesting thing, there's two real interesting things there. First, it's Benjamin Tall who reports this, and he is a level-headed guy if there is one, he doesn't sort of make up wild numbers. And secondly, a million miscount, uh, uh, excuse me, a million miscount. I mean, the idea is apparently, according to Tall, that the National Statistics Agency admitted that there are gaps in the counting. And in fact, but between what is real and whats what they're accounting. So in 2011, there were 40% fewer people counted than actually were here. But Michael, it didn't matter so much because we didn't have that much immigration. But now even though the 40% number has now gone to 20%, it still meant in 2021 the miscount was 250,000. So if you add it up, we now at a million more non-permanent residents than we were counting. So that million permanent residents and a million non-permanent residents. Now what does it mean? Every province and every city makes their budgets and their future plan and infrastructure projects and schools and everything is based on these numbers. And and obviously some
0: cities more impacted. One of the things I, I failed to emphasize is we know where the majority of newcomers go to, and they go to Vancouver, they go to Toronto, you know, Montreal, maybe lesser extent Hamilton, but there are these certain urban centers that are going to feel the pressure of this far greater than uh, many, many others in Canada. So it becomes even more crucial, even more detrimental, as you say, when it comes to planning for a huge array of services. And I'm happy you mentioned schools, because that's a problem right now. Uh, you know, as we come to this time of year, obviously, obviously health care, obviously getting a family doctor. The list is just a huge one. I mean, this is a major uh, mistake. I, I don't even think mistake does it justice.
3: Well, and that's what I'm saying, and it's a good source. I mean, it's not some wild-eyed speculant. The population, we are now at 40 million. We hit that earlier this year. And if we underestimate the non-permanent residents, Benjamin Talt's report says that it's the equivalent of more than two years of building capacity that we don't have.
0: Yeah, that's gone missing because of this. Yeah. As I say, this is going to be a story that is going to continue with us, has so many ramifications. I wanna take a little detour here now, Ozzy, though, because one of the one of the uh, agencies under fire are airbnbs and they're under fire i think because municipalities are looking for scapegoats this is you know this is sort of a simple explanation why we don't have more rental accommodation cuz we're doing short term rentals instead of longer term rentals but you know i'm finding that you know as i say airbnbs are also in the news over the last few months
3: well and and you know when you take a look at it it's it's kind of not too surprising i mean we have huge cost increases for an average rental unit His taxes are dramatically higher, the starter fees are up, the insurance have gone to the sky. At the same time, you have rent controls. Everything then, on top of it, the owner has to suffer the indignity of being blamed for everything. He's blamed for the rent, the tenants are the poor tenants that he's increasing on, and he is stuck with increasing his world by 2% which has gone up by 12% in expenses. So they say, well, what else is there? Well, Airbnb doesn't have rent control. It's a real business with quantifiable expenses. You can justify the exorbitant condo prices, or somewhat, because you can make more income. And so... the the hotels are ridiculously expensive. You know, Mike, I went to Whistler. I made a speech to 250 dentists. By the way, you haven't lived until you were with 250 yeah. dentists <laughs> But at Whistler. And I had an average room, Mike, and it's $500. There was nothing special about the room. So hotels, everything is more expensive. So gradually, visitors, people are drifting towards the Airbnb.
0: Well, I mean, obviously, it's a way of financing uh, with interest rates going way up. People are looking for a way of affording the place they live in, for one thing, or if they've got a rental property, they're looking to afford that and make it make sense. So, again, they could probably make more money on a short-term relentless rental than just sort of that one sort of regular kind of monthly fee.
3: No question about it. Now, the thing is, it's still, if you're buying in Vancouver and a one-bedroom unit for 850,000 and rent it for 2,500, by no measure is that an investment. You're not an investor. You're hoping to flip it for something else. So what we, we... I did a video on this with Kelly Fry, who is an Airbnb expert with Keller Williams. So we're looking at the Fraser Valley. If you go to a smaller town, say Chilliwack, or you're looking at Abbotsford. And you know those Airbnb They have, right now in the summer, 27, 29 days, every day they're booked, right? So the income is much better. It's a different business, a different world than being a regular landlord. But it's no surprise to me that people are drifting towards that.
0: Yeah, one of the things that occurred to me by people who want to limit Airbnbs uh, because they want to, you know, sort of get that for more longer term rentals, but they may be discouraging further uh development because somebody may say you know what i'm going to invest in this condo or i'm going to you know someone's going to build a major uh sort of condo set of units and they go and one of the reasons that people will buy them is they say it can make sense financially as an as an investment hopefully they get capital gains they'll think and also the cash flow from this so i'm wondering boy does that discourage further building
3: In in its own way, I mean, look, in the end, you cannot force an investor to go out and lose money. We talked about the developer in Toronto was going to build 400 rental units, but because of a 60,000 HST tax, he said, no, thank you very much. The building isn't getting built. And he's not some terrible, awful developer kind of person. No, he was going to lose 20% of his investment. And if he didn't have the tax, he would have made 12% and he would have built them. So anything that takes away from the logic of investment uh, is just not workable.
0: That's a great point. Hey, let me just finish this one thing. You just mentioned you have a YouTube up on this very subject. I'll get you to remind us where to find that. But one of the things I'm sure you'll have to describe because I just said it so glibly was the difference between a landlord and an Airbnb owner.
3: Oh, no question. It's a business. And you have to understand that cleanliness, cleaning, management, you have to have house rules. This is what you expect. And you have to treat it like that. If you're not a hotel. So you have to understand the rules, uh, rules very well and enforce them for you. Yeah. The video we have is, is uh, on YouTube and it would be YouTube forward slash Jurok video.
0: Yep, Jurok video on YouTube. So you can find it if you're considering this. I think that's a great idea, a great starting point to get the do's and don'ts on that. In the meantime, Ozzy, as I say, there's nothing in the numbers that suggested from Benjamin Tall that the challenges with housing and affordable rents, et cetera, is anywhere close to being over. I still stand by the statement that I think this is going to be one of the major societal challenges as we go forward because we see no sign of being able to handle it. And there's not a lot of sign. There's one little mention from the government that. May reconsider the number of student visas because they don't know how many were coming in, and of course, it's been uh, huge. But uh, I don't see this co- uh, the whole housing crisis in any way getting resolved in in my lifetime, probably.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you're, pro- you're probably very right because they don't even have a system to track the people with expired visas. Yeah,
0: good stuff, Ozzy. I hope you go out and remind people, by the way, to go to osbuzz.ca as well as go to YouTube for the Airbnb video. Have a great week, Ozzy.
3: Thanks, Michael. And um, You know, I go out a lot and, and I like to eat my potatoes and I like to have a glass of beer and I eat my cake. And last night there was somebody that, that said, oh, I shouldn't have eaten that chocolate pie. Well, that's terrible. You either enjoy it or you don't enjoy it. I don't like kale. I tell everybody I don't like kale. But everything else I eat. Now listen, health nuts going to feel stupid one day. They're lying in hospitals dying from nothing.
0: <laughs> well I'm gonna put I'm gonna Kale's on my list also, but Cilantro is not top of my list. Who invented Cilantro? I don't know who, but I want their name. Ozzy, have a great week. And you too, Mike, and all your listeners. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. Well if you're a regular listener, you know that the major trend impacting every investment, the financial system, economics, politics, society in general is confidence, which is why I found the just released survey and research by Public Health Canada to be so important because it found that less than a third of Canadians have high trust in the federal government. Only large media organizations and celebrities scored lower on the trust scale. While 32% have high trust in government, provincial governments got only 26%. My goodness. And given their talk of another COVID shot, with the new COVID strain, I think the confidence is going to determine the percentage of Canadians who are going to voluntarily take it and abide by any other COVID measures. But the point is, the bottom line is people trust healthcare providers, whether you're talking doctors or NERFs, but they do it far more than they trust government. According to the research, 17% say they were less likely to trust the government of Canada than before the pandemic. As I say, my goodness, only the media at 18%, and celebrities at 8% fared worse than government. But here's another finding from that survey that I find so important, is that the public wants, in quotes, factual, balanced, unbiased, and politically neutral information that includes source attribution. Now, speaking personally, I found that's what was missing in the COVID communications and the vast majority of media coverage. There was no, it wasn't really factual, certainly wasn't balanced, and it was biased in many ways. But I'll leave all that for another time. For now, the key point is this. The confidence in government is declining. This is just yet another measure. And the consequences are great for every aspect of society, including the erosion of personal freedom. Because when the government can't persuade, the tendency has been for government to use force. In the meantime, this should be the key aspect or variable that I think the media and politicians and the rest of us should focus on is restoring confidence in government. Otherwise, look out. I'm going to go live to the trading desk now. Uh, Victor Adair joins me. Vic, of course, on Friday, we got those numbers, uh, a surprise, I think, against the forecast that the Canadian economy had actually contracted in the second quarter, where I think the sort of uh, normal kind of an analytical framework had them growing by one to one and a half percent and you sort of declined by two tenths of a percent. Uh, and I'm just wondering, what impact did that have? Uh, give me the bond market, give me, you know, because I think it's taken the interest rate increase out of the picture when they meet next week.
4: Yeah, the, the market currently is not expecting the Bank of Canada to raise rates next week, uh, nor are, is they expecting the, the Fed to raise interest rates uh, later in September when they meet. The GDP number that came out Friday morning for the second quarter in Canada uh, was a, a mildly negative number, yeah. uh, and the market had been expecting a mildly positive number. I have to tell you, it was totally overshadowed by the employment report that came out at exactly the same time in the United States. And that was just way more significant. But uh, as the day went on, on Friday, I was with a number of markets that I'm watching. I thought, God, you know, the Canada is looking a little heavy here relative to what other currencies are. And I thought, Oh gee, I should check that GDP number. Oh, there you go. That's it. So the Canadian dollar was trading at a two week high, uh, Before that number came out and it fell about a half a cent on Friday, but then all uh, the world's currencies fell against the U.S. dollar on Friday. So, yeah, the GDP number was maybe a disappointment, but uh, as you say, I guess the takeaway is don't look for the Bank of Canada to raise rates next week.
0: Well, the Federal Reserve has told us uh, for for ages that, you know, they look at the employment number, they wanted to see some action in the employment side of the picture. Uh, What did you see? Tell us a little bit about the employment number that came out Friday and the market reaction to it.
4: Okay, I'm not going to pretend to be the economist and do the deep dive here, but, you know, by looking at market sentiment, we had a handful of employment reports that came out during the week with the, what we used to call the granddaddy of all the employment data, the, the monthly uh, non-farm payroll report. In a nutshell, okay, the employment reports in the United States indicated that the rate of growth in employment is slowing. Uh, Unemployment. Uh, pardon me. The number of people unemployed ticked up a little bit. Wages didn't increase much. But why this is important? <laughs> this yeah. is kind of the big picture stuff. You know, the biggest question is what's the Fed going to do? And then you can say, well, what's going to make the Fed decide to decide to do what they're going to do? And what the Fed wants to see clearly is inflation to get down. That's that's what's the, been their objective, and the Bank of Canada. So what would you know, cause inflation to go down? Well, the, if the economy slowed, well, what would cause the economy to slow? Well, maybe if people stopped buying so much stuff, mm-hmm. well, what would cause them to do that? Oh, they lost their job. Oh, okay, I get it. So if we could get enough people to lose their jobs and we could get inflation down, in the Fed would cut interest rates. Okay, that's kind of, you know, as I say, and I'm sorry for being silly maybe a bit with that, but that's kind of the lay of the land here. So the stock market is looking at possible Fed activity as if the Fed cuts, baby, you got to buy everything. That's it. that's the green light signal. Yes. The, the bond market, I think, is looking and saying, you know, if the economy slows and people aren't spending, then a, a, maybe interest rates would actually fall. So the bond market's been rallying uh, on the expectation of a recession. The stock market's been rallying kind of on the hopes that because of a recession, the Fed will cut interest rates. So, you know, you pick a winner.
0: Yeah, but that's a great, actually, great summation of what's going on sentiment-wise. You know, one of the things that's been confusing going back over the last couple of years was sort of bad economic news was good news. You know, for stocks, as you say, because they anticipated, oh, good, the rate rises won't be as abrupt and maybe we even get a decline in rates. So I, th- I think that's an important context. Uh, the other thing I want to bring a couple of other things, though, so, oil prices, because uh, they're showing strength. And there's so much data out there. And I I mean, obviously, I'm I'm bullish and I'm not trying to get just confirmation bias, but I'm, you know, I still don't think we handled any of the problems that produced the shortages we saw last year. And it's interesting to see the oil markets uh, showing strength regardless of sort of slowdown in economic growth in Europe and maybe a little more suspicious that we got a slower economy in the U.S., for example.
4: Well, WTI, as we traded in New York, is up about 25% from the lows it had in June. And, you know, you got uh, the the auxiliary uh, increases in gasoline prices and uh, heating oil and and so on. So that part of the energy market is up. And since June, I mean, what's that? That's all of two months ago, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, you know, the rate of increase is pretty dramatic. And you would have to think that if we continue to have rising energy prices like that, that would feed through to uh, higher inflation because that's just how it works. Yeah, the... (laughs) <laughs> it's always a puzzle here as to, you know, leading the horse to water or bringing the water to the horse in terms of what happens first and what happens, you know, what is caused by the other.
0: Well, the thing that you've also brought up, and I want to reiterate right now, is we're in the last week of August, you know, we're the Labor Day weekend this weekend. And as you sort of just hinted at last week, that has a very different trading kind of thing because there's so, it's so light. There's so, you know, many traders off for the long weekend, been off for this week, that kind of thing. So you can 't read too much in market action in this last week, uh, you know as I say, into the Labor Day,
4: yeah my experience, Mike and sitting in front of my screens here for over forty years that sort of markets come back with a bang after uh, Labor Day, so what has happened before Labor Day may have very little impact yeah. on you know, what's what's going to be important as we go into the fall and, and I guess one of the things that I see that's important is it the economy seems to have been stronger in the United States because consumers have been more robust with their spending than people expected. One of the reasons they're doing that is they've, they've really used the plastic. We have credit card debt now at over a trillion dollars in the United States. Uh, the interest rates on those balances are over 20 percent. And I see that Major credit card companies are looking to increase their fees. If you can believe it, so it's kind of like at some point, and I think this is what some of the analysts are looking for. At some point, things shift, and suddenly the narrative doesn't go from "Hey, everything's great" to "Oh, people start to see gloomy things." You know, so uh, and historically, the early part of the fall is a time when <laughs> when the the scary things come out. You know, it's Halloween. Yeah.
0: Well, again, you'll be there to chronicle it. And as you say, especially get people to tune in to victoradare.ca next week because that is the kickoff week kind of, you know, school's back, I know, but many other things start happening uh, in the markets, as you say, usually robust action there. So go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. Vic, you better enjoy the next couple of days on this
4: Labor Day weekend because, uh, as you say, the action's going to hit you next week. Well, uh, honestly, you know, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, this, this time of the year, it's, it's worse than Christmas from a trading point of view. I, I like it when there's some action. But anyway, thanks for having me on, Mike. Great stuff.
0: Time now for this week's Goofy Award. Hey, did you catch the story of the young man, a member of the climate change activism group, Ottawa, Onto Ottawa, it's called Onto Ottawa. Last week he entered the National Art Gallery through pink paint on the Tom Thompson masterpiece, Northern River, which, by the way, took Mr. Thompson two years to complete. Well, you may may remember um, Onto Ottawa. Remember them, they interrupted the Juno Awards, or they smeared pink paint also on an exhibit at the Royal British Columbia Museum in Victoria earlier this year. Well, the young paint thrower, who later glued himself to the floor in Ottawa, won't win any awards for originality. I mean, throwing paint on celebrated works of art and gluing themselves to the floor, but done so often, it's now a cliché. More importantly, an ineffective cliché. I wonder if the activists have figured out yet that much of the paint and glue they've used is petroleum-based. But there's no sign that's occurred to them. Or the fact that Thompson's Northern River features the landscape the activists claim to be saving. Groups like to Ottawa or Just Stop Oil, Last Generation, claim that vandalizing rare works of art by coating them, well, it might be paint, but it might be pea soup, might be tomato soup, mashed potatoes, along with other disruptions, are effective in turning the conversation toward climate change. You know what? There's absolutely no evidence to support that claim, that vandalizing valued works of art, they've done it to Thompson, obviously, but Van Gogh, Emily Carr, Vermeer, Toulouse-Lautrec, Have done anything but foster public outrage and disgust. I mean, do they really think that someone sees that a Van Gogh, or in this case, Canadian classic by Tom Thompson, and says, gee, now I'm on the climate change bandwagon? I mean, it's absolutely delusional. If they really want to make an impression, though, in the name of climate action, how about swearing off the 6,000 petroleum products that uh, are done, as I say, based on petroleum? Just say no to foods grown with nitrogen based fertilizer. Don't use anything that's packaged in plastic. Say no to cars, air travel, goods transported by trucks. Don't travel on roads paved with asphalt. No riding on bikes because you know what? The tires are based on petroleum. And of course, no more throwing petroleum-based paint and using uh, petroleum-based glue. That would show a heck of a lot more leadership than throwing paint or soup in an art gallery. As for the public reaction, no. Far from enhancing the case for increased action on climate change, Most in the public want enhanced measures to stop these attacks and punish the perpetrators. Right now, purposely vandalizing public works of art looks like a clear case of public mischief and is covered by Section 430 in the Criminal Code. If a perpetrator is a first-time offender, come on, there's not much chance he's going to jail. The fact is, though, that he's guilty, which satisfies the first criteria in sentencing, but other criteria is whether it's in the public interest. That's the thing. My bet is most people think it would be in the public interest, yes. But there has, you know, is there any serious consequences? I don't know. That's the question that's still out there. And for many, a probationary sentence with restrictions to staying away from, say, that art gallery is not near enough. Hey, that's all the time we have this week. But I want to give you the updated and the final poll results we have. do uh, Remember, we asked the question, do you agree that Canadians should hold a federal election? or wait to hold, should not hold a federal election until a full independent public inquiry is held to expose the full extent of Chinese interference in Canada and our election. Well, it's fascinating, tons of tons of results. I sort of thought maybe at first that we'd get a lot of people saying yes, and we did, about two-thirds saying yes, don't hold an election. But we had just over a quarter say, no, get that election done. And to be honest, most of the sentiment seemed to say, I want an election right now. I don't want to wait for it. I don't care about that. And obviously, they're not fans of the current government. But I appreciate everybody weighing in on that. I love hearing the opinions. I love hearing the comments, all of that. And just a reminder you can get more when you go to Mike's Money ca. Mike's Money ca. or join us on Twitter if uh, Money Talks tweets, or join us on Facebook, Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. All great stuff, but I appreciate everybody participating in the poll. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy the rest of the holiday weekend and have a terrific first week of school.